So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. I am really pleased to bring you this episode. The middle feature today is exactly the kind of story we set up this podcast to tell. Uh, it's an interview with Craig Jones, who's a wildlife photographer, but actually you needn't be interested really in either wildlife or photography to become immersed in his story, which he tells really frankly and resonantly. I don't want to give much away, but we cover a lot of ground. Personal, societal, it's also inspirational. I I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. Uh, Before we get going, though, thanks to Grant, who's written in with feedback regarding last week's foxhole about... water sports. Uh, He says, in answering this question, both you and Alex speculated as to whether or not you'd already discussed the topic. Let me cast your minds back to season one, episode three. I am the anonymous listener who asked Alex for her advice on how to approach my partner about my interest in Eurolagnia. I am very pleased to say that a few years on, and after talking openly about it, We both had a very smooth transition into experimenting with these things and beginning to enjoy them. Thank you, Alex, for your fantastic suggestions, and thank you, Ollie and team, for a fantastic show. How about that? Grant, very happy piss play to you. Um, Hello as well to Tom in Bristol. I don't know if you like urine, but he's written to tell us he enjoyed last week's episode as well by emailing us in the style of one of Kathleen Saxton's NLP headhunter emails. Uh, He says, Ollie, I've been remiss in not buying you all beer. Uh, Thank you, Tom. Uh, My theory, he says, about why people often don't feel they need to pay for content on their phones is because the actual device and contract are so expensive, you almost feel as if you're paying for all the stuff you stream as part of your mobile package. Of course you aren't, and I've been remiss in not doing this sooner. Uh, Tom, thank you for the beers, and I couldn't have put it better myself. This show is free to download. It always will be. We love this medium of podcasting, reaching as many man fans as we can with an easy tap of your phones, but it isn't free to produce. People need to be paid, the music gets cleared, we do do things properly, and that all costs money. And the only way we can afford to make 30 episodes a year and make them bigger and better is by having your listener donations. Without that, we are entirely reliant on sponsorship and advertising. And, well, you'll know if you're a regular listener, it very much ebbs and flows. Some weeks we have a few ads, other weeks we don't. But we're a completely independent production. We make the show we want to make and you want to hear regardless. So if you enjoy this show, if you've been listening like Tom for years and think, well, someone else is paying for it, just remember if everyone thought like that, the show couldn't exist. So if you can afford to do what Tom did, uh, sign up on our secure form to buy us just one beer a month. That's £3.60, about five US dollars, 75p cheaper than a monthly copy of Esquire, and that's full of ads. Uh, do it now. Modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Click Beer Money. And yes, you can also donate via PayPal. Links are there. And yes, you can also contribute whatever amount you want, as often or as little as you want, even a one-off payment. Modernman.co.uk. Click Beer Money. Thanks. Right, on today's show, you will learn what a lay bet is. You'll learn how to make a beautiful urban garden and you'll learn the Norwegian word for a sweaty flange. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man... I'm in the theatre of war, and the theatre of wildlife kept me alive. Survival, solace, and starting over. How nature can save your soul. If you're sitting on it increasing the package a lot, then what's inside the packet can get damaged. And Alex Fox helps a listener become condominant. But first, recorded in a bar this week because it sounds cool and not at all because of budget, it's the zeitgeist, all you need to know about the trends for the week ahead, with the man that I've been teaching Yiddish today, Ollie Pitt. Olve. That's so cute. Uh, what are your big trends for the week? Millennial lingo. 
did you just do a compound word, millennialingo? I did. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Did you make it up? I made it up. Fine. Diana Hoek is a copy editor, and uh, recently she shared a post online, and the post detailed the way that millennials use grammar uh, to encode meanings that older people can't really understand. Oh, is this one of those scare stories where they're like, beware what your teenage daughter's telling no, someone no, no, on no, the No, 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 no. I'll give you a very simple example. The difference between yes and yes with a full stop is huge. Okay, that's interesting because I'm currently living with my sister-in-law because our house is being built, so we're living with her parents and her sister at the moment. Cool story. And she says yes in three different ways. She says yes... She says, yup. And then she does this thing which sounds like she must have got it off Greg James or something. Go on. Where she goes, yes! It's like an ironised, I'm excited, but I shouldn't be. But it's almost like the sort of acoustic equivalent of a gif, I feel. Like it would be a panda clapping or something. Yeah, sure. Okay, but she's, say- so she's saying that out loud. Yeah, she's like, yes! Okay, but do you know the difference between yes, yes and a full stop? No. Okay, so yes, casual, you ask me a question, you say... Hey, Ollie, would you like to learn how to speak Yiddish? Yes. <laughs> and if I say yes, but with a full stop, mm. that means that I'm slightly annoyed by your questioning. So it's a closing down yeah. of the conversation. Have you ever seen the words, what the fuck, written, but certain letters have been capitalised? So uh, the H, the A, the T, the E, the U and the K will be capitalised, no. but not the rest. It's to emphasise surprise. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Like that. So when you read it, yes, because it, 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 it lends a level it of wobbliness. Um, and the other one is uh, that I really like, which I haven't used and I've never actually seen before, mm. is, uh, you know, the wavy hyph- hyphens, wavy hyphens, tilds, they're called, I think. Yeah, I've never known what they were for. Well, yeah, they're basically for mocking the important. So... Ollie man <laughs> I'm mocking you Yeah But wouldn't you be using Inverted commas for that No because I'm a millennial I'm using Tilds So tilled Ollie man tilled Is that what it looks like Yeah As in Oh yeah that really brilliant presenter Ollie man God yeah <laughs> Tilled Ollie man Tilled well, wow. don't look at me blankly. No, no, I'm fascinated. You are demonstrating my point. There's this yes. new language evolving which millennials understand without necessarily even knowing that they're creating this language. They would read it and understand its meaning. Yeah. Older people are like, what? What else have you got for us this week? Auto car watch. We talk about autonomous cars quite a lot. Too much, they're, some might argue. Yes, but they're developing. They're evolving. And what, the, the listeners who think you talk about it too much? <laughs> they're slowly coming around to your point of view. One day they'll get it. This year... In California, where you can drive autonomous cars, mm. there have been six crashes. What What do you mean? Six, six crashes of autonomous cars? Six crashes at all? Of autonomous vehicles. Oh, I was going to say. Because if, if having introduced autonomous cars to the roads, <laughs> they'd managed to get collisions down to six, six. in a year. That <laughs> would be an impressive statistic. This is since the beginning of 2018. Fine, yeah. So it's been six. Uh, and two of those were because people have run up to them and started attacking them. Let me read you the accident report. This one, January 2nd, a Chevy Bolt EV... Uh, operated by General Motors, was driving around San Francisco in the Mission District and it was waiting at a green light for pedestrians to cross when a man ran across Valencia Street against the Do Not Walk symbol, shouting, and struck the left side of the Cruise AV's rear bumper and hatch with his entire body, damaging a tail light. Wow. So out of those six crashes, mm. three of them were being manually operated, so they weren't autonomously operated, and the other two were because someone got out and started beating up the car. Now, I think they went so to beat up... that one legitimate accident caused by the car. Yeah, but I actually think it's robot propaganda, because basically what it's saying is, look... We're all right, robot cars. We don't cause incidents. It's yes. you lot messing about, slapping our windows. We're the marginalised minority on the streets of California. We are. Well, it could mean that, or it could just mean that um, since the dawn of time, people have attacked cars, and we've all seen 40 Towers. I might hit one if it broke down. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever hit a car? Have I ever hit a car? I think I've probably kicked a wheel in frustration. Oh, no, I've broken a, an indicator stalk off. Okay, but not in anger. Yes, in anger. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you didn't intend to pull it off whilst driving, you just... No, and I didn't pull it off. I sort of snapped, I angrily indicated so hard <laughs> that it snapped off. I managed to pull a gear knob off a Citroen van whilst I was driving it once by just over-emphatically <laughs> going into second. Did you comically then look at it whilst hurtling down the hill? Yes. Whoop. Yep. And it it <laughs> yes. would have been comical had you been watching it on camera, but at the time I did think I might die. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I was only doing 30 though, so I probably would have just had life-changing injuries. So, uh, let's move on. Um, it's time for you to report back on last week's challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, man fan Rebecca from London tasked you with trying your hand at match betting. Yep. Is that what it's called, or matched betting? Matched betting. Matched betting. Mm-hmm. First of all, let's clarify what match betting is. Now you've spent a week learning about it. Yeah, because it's taken me most of the week to figure it out. There are two ways you can place a bet. 
for a bookmaker yeah. and for an exchange. If you place a bet for I'm already a, lost. What's an exchange? So when you place a bet <laughs> with a bookmaker, yeah. you say, say you're the bookmaker, and I say, okay, I want to bet on this game. Here's 10 quid. Here are the odds. And if I lose, you keep my money. If I win, you give me my money back plus my winnings. Yes, right? I understand Simple. that. Yeah. In an exchange, yeah. we bet between each other. So I can become the bookmaker. You've said, I think they're going to win. And I say, well, I think they're going to lose. So okay. I can bet so this against is your bet. Liverpool versus Chelsea, right? Yeah. So I'm saying Chelsea's going to win. You're saying Liverpool's going to win. Then yeah. what happens? So what I can do is I can bet against your bet. I don't understand. So you bet that they're going to win. Yes. I bet that they're going to lose. I bet that they're going to win. You bet that they're going to lose. Right. So you're not you- betting that Chelsea are going to win. You're betting that Liverpool are going to lose. Yes. So with match betting, the principle is I go into an app like Skybet. Uh-huh. And I will put five quid on, let's say, Liverpool-Chelsea. No, let's use the actual example that I did, okay. which was Tottenham versus Juventus. Okay. I put money on Tottenham to win at yeah. odds of 2.2 decimal odds yeah don't know what it means but it doesn't matter right I then go into Betfair Exchange it's a separate app and I go in and I bet on the odds for Tottenham to lose that game 2.2 so yeah. I've cancelled out my bet yes I'm not making any money in fact I make a loss because the odds are slightly different I make mm-hmm. a loss of about 50p mm-hmm. okay you mm-hmm. with me yes but on Skybet, when you place a £5 bet, yeah. you get a free £20 bet. Okay, right. So Wait, it was basically what I said But we're not there. Week. No, okay. we're not there oh, yet. Right. Okay. I haven't made my profit. Yeah, sure. I've just got a £20 free bet. So yeah. all that means is I can bet 20 quid. That's not cash. Yeah. So then what I have to do is I have to do exactly the same process. <laughs> yes. But I find another game. I bet my £20. I then go into Betfair. Mm. And I have to then bet against my £20 bet. So yeah. I'm always going to win. And but you're I using your cash. But hold on. But you're using your real money twenty pounds against the twenty pound free bet, right? So you've got to invest minimum twenty five pounds for this to work. Yes. Okay. You ha- in fact, yes, that is the minimum. That so you, have you to can invest. presumably lose that twenty five pounds. No, you cannot lose because if I bet against it on Betfair, yeah, and I've bet f- for them to win in Skybet, yes, okay, yeah, they cancel each other out. Yeah. But I'm going to make profit because of the odds that I've bet on. It gets complicated when you're betting in the free bet because you have to use a matched betting calculator to work out how much money you have to put on the lay bet that's the bet against your bet so that you make sure you win your money back where do you find one of those? teamprofit.com okay they basically explain it all in a step-by-step video guide that tells you exactly how you can go through this process and essentially win not win but make 600 quid and what's in it for them? What's in it for Team Profit? So all of the links that link through to the offer codes on like Skybet are affiliated. Okay. So they'll make a percentage on that. Okay. So Rebecca said that she'd made £150 since the beginning of the year. Yep. You've had a week. Mm-hmm. How much have you made? Can we, can we get a drum roll? Um, sure. I mean, I'll bang the table. £5.96. Excellent. How many bets was that on? Uh, one. And do you know why? What do you mean one? Well, it's so much admin. I'm I can't... so disappointed. I was so I just, pleased when you I were just... explaining something to me. I genuinely didn't know. You were teaching me something. I was impressed by your mastery of the subject. You'd obviously learnt something and gone out of your way to really understand it and communicate it well. And then you've just still flunked the challenge somehow. £5.96. Yeah, because I had no choice. It's not worth because... your time, is it? Right. I just assumed I knew what match betting was because I think I'm cleverer than I actually am. Thought I'd get the free bet off Labrooks. I lost £4. I didn't know what I was doing. So for my £5.96, it's actually £1.96 because I lost £4 on Labbrooks. And I've still got that money on there. And I had to tweet them and say, where's my free bet and how do I get my money back? It's like, well, you can't because you've bet. So it's taken a lot of effort, a lot of time. It's incredibly Mm. difficult. I've I've given my details away to multiple... Multiple bloody betting apps. Yeah, you can never go to Gibraltar ever again. No. So, just to be precise then, although you've only made £1.96. 96. <laughs> I literally, I just bought you a coffee that costs more than that. <laughs> anyway, even though you've only made £1.96, you are now equipped with the knowledge, right, to make that £150. I'm also equipped with tens of pounds locked in betting apps at the moment, which... <laughs> need to get out so what but what i want to do if it's all right yeah i'm going to keep doing it and then i'll just report back at some point yeah of course it's right so okay but when what you mocked rebecca last time saying it was risk-free yeah but it genuinely is isn't it yeah, sounds you, like it because you're not betting yeah you, it, it, when you look into it when you finally understand it 
if if you're listening and you've grasped it, you'll know what I mean. You're not actually betting on anything. Yeah. You're not making a loss. You're literally just taking money. You're taking free money. But is there a limit? I don't understand maths and gambling. It gets very complicated, which is why I don't gamble. But is there a limit, actually, on how much you could make from something like this? <clears throat> yes, because you can only get as much money as there are free bets on offer. So right. team, this team, Profit.com they basically talk you through a week-by-week week guide on how to do it and there's like 25 betting apps that are offering a certain level of free bets and they've worked out that you can get roughly 600 quid 600 pounds okay. it's a lot of money and yeah. so i suppose the idea then is once you've made 600 pounds yes that was risk-free you fritter it away you, on horses you put it all in black don't you yeah and then you might get 1200 pounds or you sure. might have just wasted the last six months of your life i'll tell you, tell you one thing that it has sh- like shown to me is that betting apps are unnecessarily complicated and you can literally bet on anything that you've never heard of it's out it's just ridiculous i i won my one pound 96 mm. on some obscure brazilian game that presumably took place in a park behind the back of some bins <laughs> of course because football is a really minor league sport in brazil and what is the attitude of the betting sites to this? I'd imagine if I was I've, Paddy Power or whatever, I wouldn't be that keen on people coming onto my site just to. Well, no, I've jumped bet. to my own conclusions. I think when, when you when you go on and you, you're doing the match betting and you get what is essentially free money, you do get that sense of winning. Mm. And I think that they keep it. Yeah. This is an assumption, so I'm just you know an opinion. Yeah. But I think they don't mind it because I reckon it gets people hooked on gambling. And you've then got all the apps on your phone, haven't you? And they're so all when there. when you do want to put £10 on the yep. Grand National... You've got money in there. Click, you've click. got your sign-up. Yeah. You just, just your fingerprint scanner. I'm in. Grand yeah. National. Five grand. Yes. <laughs> That's the next step. Um, so you don't think they're ever going to close this loophole then? No, I don't. OK, well, let's see if this week's challenge uh, gets you hooked on an addictive uh, online activity. Is it trying heroin? Um, here is your challenge. Only Peter's opening the envelope. Chris B in Bournemouth, that's not far from me, I've just got one of those voice-controlled speakers and when I ask it to play The Modern Man, it plays a song by Arcade Fire. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, I've seen it. Good. For Ollie's challenge, can he please experiment with the right words and work out what words I actually need to say to listen to your show. So what we want is not... Because uh, Chris B hasn't told us which of these speakers he has at home. Right. You're going to like this. You look concerned, but you're going to no, enjoy this. I'm not this. concerned. That's just confused. Get, get ready for an exciting thing. OK, yeah, yeah. We have gone and got you, Ollie Peart, an Amazon Echo Dot, a Google Home Mini, and an Apple HomePod. Oh, my goodness. You're going to take them all home today. Right. And you're going to report back next week and let us know the skill you need to say, what you need to say to Alexa, Siri and Google to get it to play The Modern Man. I do feel, though, that it might be quite straightforward for you to answer Chris's question. It's only going to take you, really, probably half an hour of playing around with different formulations of Play Me The Modern Man to work out how to play our show. So to broaden his challenge a bit, I'd also like you to come back telling us about five things we didn't know that smart speakers could do. OK, I can do that. Enjoy. Goodbye. Hello man fans, my name is Ula Maria and I am an owner of Garden Design Company Studio Unwired and the Royal Horticultural Society Young Designer of the Year. These are my life hacks for making a beautiful urban garden. Tip number one would be to look for inspiration. So first identify what's your style. It's really important because often urban gardens are small spaces. So you want to make the most impact with the space that you've got, whether it's a courtyard garden or a tiny balcony. So think about what kind of character and sense of place you're trying to achieve. Is it a tropical paradise, a naturalistic meadow, lush calming woodland or a colorful prairie style feel that you love the most? Keeping with one style and having a theme running throughout the garden will give you the most effective results. Tip number two, right plant, right place. So it's really important to examine the conditions of the place where you're planning to plant. Is it mostly sunny and dry or wet and shady? Is it sheltered or exposed to harsh wind? It is really important to understand this if you want your plants to thrive and be happy where they grow. Nowadays, most of the plant seller websites will have the online tools to pick the most suitable plants according to the specific site conditions. Tip number three is don't forget evergreens. Make sure that you plant some evergreen plants in your garden. They will provide structure and all year round lush green foliage. 
Normally, most of the evergreen plants go really well in urban conditions as well. So your garden and planters will never look bare and empty, even during cold winter season. Well, these are my top three life hacks for creating an urban garden. You can find out more information by visiting my website, studio-unwire.com, where you can get in touch with me so that I can help you create your perfect outdoor space. Now, wildlife and conservation photographer Craig Jones says he uses his camera to give wildlife a voice. And his photos really do do that. Breathtaking images of puffins touching beaks at the start of the breeding season, orangutans in squalid captivity in Indonesia, rockhopper penguins braving the choppy Atlantic waves in the Falklands. But Craig's interest in nature was, in a way, about giving himself a voice, as he told me when I went to meet him at his flat in Stoke-on-Trent. My father was a womanizer, kind of a violent man, uh, uh, worked and went out drinking. But I learned very early on that my father had very little to do with me, but my mother would overcompensate. I was kind of a nervous child, I think, but I'd always found great solace in nature, outside drawing things, watching things. My mum would take me to Bluebell Wood, Park Hall, Safari Lake, and I'd just sit there with cold toast, very cheap, uh, a flask, of lukewarm coffee and I just sort of draw my mum brought me some old binoculars eight by tens I think like door stoppers and I used to carry them around in a felt box and I think looking back she understood that I was struggling at school I was struggling at home I had a fantastic relationship with my mother she taught me to cook wash iron so we lived in that kind of home where it where it, we knew fear but I also knew love and what was the escape then of going out into nature for you it was an escape from him when you're watching animals, you see almost, you know, behavior in its innocent form. You'll see violence, you'll see mating, you'll see grooming, you'll see affection, you'll see flying. And it just fascinated me. I tried to capture this drawing, two circles, draw the, draw the, draw the feathers. And it was just very, very interesting. It was an escape. And then my mum used to always say, BN for your tea. And I'd look at me watch and I'd have to go back. And it's it, also as well, it strikes me quite contextualizing. It's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? You lie down, look at the stars and say, oh, how insignificant we are. But to an eight-year-old boy who's not got a happy home or school life, I can imagine that going out and seeing all this nature, all this life and death and activity reminds you that you're just a human being on the planet, just like all these other animals. Very much so. And I, and I don't think I had the, 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 the intuition or the intelligence to know that at the time. But I knew that nature was good for my soul, was good for my life and helped me cope. I was escaping from my father's brutality, really, because I didn't really have a bond with my father. I was the child that he didn't want that kept him in a loveless marriage. My brother was just a, you know, a drunken mistake, he would often say at parties and embarrass us all. But my mum really doubted on me and she understood. My mother got cancer when I was 12. So she had breast cancer, she survived that, very courageous, very strong woman. She had treatments, I remember being ill and a few things, but she kept things from me and my brother. My father, again, was in and out, he didn't seem to be there. She was trying to leave him several times. That's a time where you you want your family to be together and be close, isn't it? Yeah, I saw my mum lonely, really, Ollie. She was on her own. We lived on our own. She brought a council house in the 80s, very, very proud of that. And she had someone that was destructive to her, destructive to me. My aunts uh, later in life have said, you know, we, we, asked, we told you, Mum, leave. My eldest sisters would often say, you know, leave. I don't know why she didn't leave. I wasn't old enough to turn around and say why, and with respect, you, you're growing up. So from the age of 12 to 15, we had three nice years. He wasn't around so much. Mum had separated, but they hadn't divorced. It was kind of not the done thing. I think my mum was really proud. She wasn't religious, but she she was kind of happy. But over two years, I think it should have been an all, but it wasn't. So for three years, we had some happiness. We went to St. Ives. We went to, you know, I started to grow a little bit, played basketball for, 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 for school. I had an England trial. I boxed. In that time... Mid-80s, yeah. 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 The idea that you'd be a boxer and also a bird watcher as a 15-year-old. You know, it's not Billy Elliot territory, is it? But oh, no. it's, it's getting there, isn't it? I took up boxing, I think, to uh, help me cope with... My mum had 
cancer again when I was 15. It, it, the, the breast cancer came back and it went under her left arm called the low lymph glands. So at 15, she be, she was really ill then. And I took up boxing to just to try and help me. I, was, I wasn't sort of angry. I was just lost. And I took up boxing and also did the nature. So like you just said, two ends of the scale. Well, what did your boxing mates make of the fact that you'd spend the weekend doing ornithology? I never told them about that, you know. Even some of my friends to this day that I've known 20, 25 years didn't know of my fascination with nature and birds. I'd also been beaten quite badly a lot of my life by my father. And it was kind of empowering boxing was that, you know, all of a sudden I could defend myself, I could look after myself. And should somebody put their hand on me, I was in a position to defend myself. I'm not aggressive. I'm not violent. I'm naturally big. I've got a deep voice, but I'm not an aggressive person. But I'm, I'm very proud that from a very young age, I've been able to defend myself. So at the age of 15, my mum got gradually ill. Three days a week, we had district nurses. My mum became bed-bound for oh, some time. So I didn't, I didn't go to school. I was a carer. So there was a commode in the room, a tease made, telly, fan. And as the weeks went by, each one, you know, the fan was on, morphine from 10 milligrams to 3 milligrams. Putting my own mum on the commode. Very, very difficult times, but you just do that. My mum then lost her sight. And, and if that had happened now... To a fifteen-year-old, whatever their circumstances, you'd probably you, get help, wouldn't you? And there's you, lots of you charities. You wouldn't be at home caring full time, would you? Probably not. No. So my school suffered, but it, it was something that I loved doing. But my mum slowly, she got ill, Ollie, really ill, blind. The death rattled. They call it when people are dying, and I was a carer on those days. The district nurses couldn't come in, and then on the sixth of July, which is three four weeks later, she died at two thirty-one in the morning. My life was in disarray, I didn't know who was going to look after me and my brother. I didn't go into the care system, I was looked after by my aunties, roughies, and then I left school. School was absolutely terrible for me. I went to school, it was like an out-of-body experience that last year. Explain why, I mean, apart from the fact you're looking after your mum, it's also because you're, you're quite severely dyslexic, right? Yeah, I, was, I, didn't, I wasn't diagnosed at the time, but I, I had trouble reading and writing. I'd read things backwards. Uh, school, it was just, you don't pay attention. Naughty boy, go see the headmaster. My, where my school was, there was a, a park. I used to just go up there and help the rangers watch the little owls. You could go out the back playing fields and you were actually in this, in this country park. In my last year of my schooling, I can't even remember if I... I took exams, but I, I, got, I left with no qualifications. It was disastrous. I, I, haven't, I haven't even, don't even know what I, what I, what I got. Uh, I left school in June of that year, because at those days you left at 16. And then in the September... I had a travel warrant and I left uh, for, uh, Sean Cliff in Kent to the Junior Infantry Battalion uh, training facility for six to eight months as a junior soldier. How did that happen? From a very young age, I was always fascinated with soldiers. When I was a child uh, in, in junior school, the Falklands was on the telly. I was really young, but I just remember you know, being told by adults, Falklands, it's part of Great Britain, it's been invaded, saw these people, white flags... And we'd gather around the box and we'd see all these troops and we'd see all this. And it's kind of very nostalgic and very, made you feel proud. And no one even knew about the Falcons. Where's that? And then I'd go get an atlas in the library. And, God, it's a little island in the middle of nowhere. And then obviously the nature. God, it's penguins and things. And then for me, it was like opening small doors because looking back now, that's what this uh, is a form of dyslexia where you visualize things and look into things. When the war was over and it was won, I think it was on at school, I think it was on everywhere in those days, newspapers. I saw all these troops coming in to uh, Port Stanley and I, and I wanted to be a soldier. The shouting and the brutality was something, if I'm honest, this is going to sound really sad, but it was something that I was used to. I'd lived on my nerves all my life up until that point because of a bullying, womanising father. But whilst I was in the forces, I used to use nature to keep me alive. When you're somewhere for so long, Golly, you become tuned into nature. And what that means is if we were in an OP, we dug it, we've got turf around us, we'd got rid of all the rubbish so nobody could see us, and we were, there was two guys in an OP, and we were watching the border. What's an OP? Uh, observation point. Uh-huh. You're eating cold food, you're weaning into a bag, and you're doing two hours on, two hours off, both of you, and you're ascertaining and gathering information 
by long telescopes or binoculars and you're watching where people go from the Garda to the RUC in those days was the RUC now it's the, the Northern Ireland Police Force I think so then you become the jurisdiction of the Crown the Crown is what the British Army are you're there to defend the Crown so when you're in an OP you become so tuned in there's a rookery there there's robins there's wrens the smell of the the smell of things how they traverse how they move um, and it was just very very interesting that I'm talking about this but there was many other op- operations many other occasions in different countries and other things where nature would alarm you nature would see above you so bird calls tone tone range peak of, of the tones animals talking to each other barking it would let you know that there was something over that horizon or you know we'd always try to see 50 to you know as far as we could because it was an op it was an observation we were there to ascertain and gather information then use morse code to send it back to the hq to sit to to then get a message back to say to say deal with it or not deal with it or just take the information but whilst you're in tune, the longest was, I think, 14 days we were there, cold rations, peeing, absolutely exhausted. But you become so tuned in that there's, there's the robin, yeah, he's back. Oh, there's a blackbird. Those rooks are arguing. What are they arguing over? Have they seen something? So I know that sounds far-fetched, but you couldn't make it up. I'm in the theatre of war, and the theatre of wildlife kept me alive. It what? makes a noise and you think, oh, it's seen something. Seen something. So then you become more alert. So if it's on one side, you know something's happening that side. As it was, there was a little small a, little a path that these people would walk their dogs. And we couldn't see that cause unless you'd see it from the air. Like now, we've got drones. Look at the angle a drone would give you. These robins and animals were giving me a different angle and warning us that the people we were watching walk their dogs on this path, and that's a perfect example. Did it keep me alive? I think if you're more alert, if you walk into a room and you can see all around that room, you know everything. If part of that room is partitioned, you don't really know what's behind that partition. Funny analogy, I know, but looking back, that's how I'd view it. I got 360 vision, and I'd got someone looking down. I've, I've always found nature wherever I am. In Bavaria, where we were based on the border with Austria, we were doing specialised training there in the, in the Austrian mountains. I've always found and felt, Ollie, that I'm at an advantage as soon as I enter the natural world. I came out of the army. I was working at a at a at a high level, snipering and other things, and I was fit, team player, and I wanted to join the SAS. And they said I was too young. You've got to wait four or five years, and that would have taken me to my late twenties, early thirties. And I thought, well, that's a bit old. I contacted my second Aldi sister, who lived locally in Stoke-on-Trent. I'd not been back to Stoke for years. When I left on that train track at sixteen, I'd not really been back. I think I stayed there a couple of nights two days after coming out of the army and the police pulled up and the front door opened my sister was standing there in tears with her husband behind all my bags were packed police came up the path she doesn't want you mate sorry she doesn't want you Debbie said I don't want you I can't have you you know upset crying Brian was standing behind that was her husband at the time the door got shut police officers looked at me and said what do we do mate so put me bags in the car they were on the radio trying to find me a bed for the night. They took me to the Salvation Army in Stoke. Kind of late at night, this was, about half past eight. I remember it being dark, and I met someone, the cook. It was a woman. She was a priest. She started talking to me about God and all that, and you'll be all right. I got my army bags, Ollie. I walked out the Salvation Army. I went back to Longton, and I tried to find some shelter. Why did you walk away from the Salvation Army? Because this woman was preaching... You didn't want to be religious. It wasn't so much that. I didn't trust that environment. I didn't like it. I've got to ask you about what what happened then with your sister. Because you've told it exactly how you must have experienced it at the time. Well, I I think, looking back now, what I've been told, the husband didn't want me there. They thought I was just treating it like an address. She blames postnatal depression, and she sort of blamed that I just used it as a hotel or something like that for two nights. And then so I tr- you're effectively homeless. I was homeless, and I went back to Leeson Road in Me. It's one of the biggest, roughest estates in Stoke-on-Trent. And I made a little bed on the back steps with my stuff. It was freezing. It was November. I mean, psychologically, 
what were you thinking? Survival. Shocked. Got all my stuff here. Tried to remain smart, It's clean. a bit like you're still in the army in a way, isn't it? Horrible. Still that I, mentality. I went to the local toilets, which is still there now. It's a big open toilet. I, I had a wash there. I dusted myself off and I, I wanted to keep smart. That happened for about a few days, Ollie. I got a bed in the St. Mark's Night Shelter and I, w- I then entered into a resettlement project. It was called Pottery's Young Homeless Project and it was on uh, Litchfield Street and that helped people back into the community. So they had various different properties throughout Stoke-on-Trent where if you had enough points, tick, 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 you'd go in there and they'd monitor your budgeting, monitor your food if you could do that. So they got me, this, this was a couple of weeks and a month, they got me a job, they got me a, a flat in Stoke through Housing Association, lovely flat, couldn't believe it, wow. And my first job was in Pizza Hut, in the kitchen, making pizzas, cutting up the salad, making the doughs, the smalls, the mediums, the large, and that was my first job. I've never forgotten that start, ever, Ollie. I've never forgotten homelessness, and I try to help soldiers off the street, which is a charity today, because a lot of people that are homeless tend to be, not all, but quite a lot of ex-soldiers, not Navy or Air Force, soldiers soldiers living with a sign on the streets so there's a local charity based in derby and also stuff called soldiers off the street hand to mouth donations that kind of stuff i try to do things for them also, also help for heroes that is still something that charities need to help with because i mean whatever your view on the army and what the government get the army to do it, it seems obvious that if you're prepared to die for your country then your country should support you afterwards i, I think so i think i think if someone's living on the floor in one of the richest countries of the world, there's something wrong. And I think I was always taught don't look down on people by my mum. And that really is you're looking down on someone that's on the ground, living on drugs, got social issues, drink, but they are masking issues. That could have been me. I could have gone to drugs. I could have gone to alcohol. I think a quite a high proportion of those people that are living on the ground are ex-forces. Because you can do four, five, six, seven years service. You can go off. You can bayonet people. You can shoot people. You can try to help people. You can do hearts and mind. You can engage with people. You can put your rifle down and you can talk with people. You can help children. You can do things that we all did. Positive, positive, positive. But then when it's time to leave, you literally go to the barracks of your regiment or the headquarters. You hand in your ID card. They give you any savings or credit that you've amassed. They give you a discharge grant. And you literally then go off to your home county or your home. And if you haven't got a support mechanism in place, you have to then go to social housing, which I did do. There was nothing. You're still getting over what you've seen and done. Your pride your service, your shiny shoes, your clean chin doesn't really count for anything in Civvy Street. You're just nothing. And when I went into that Salvation Army and that woman was trying, I believe, to cavort my weakness into becoming her strength, I just turned around. And you could have said, you've had a bed for the night then, Craig. It's your fault for sleeping in the back of Iceland, eating cherry pies. I didn't feel safe in that environment that was a very controlling environment let's fast forward to when you started thinking about working with nature professionally yes so what were you doing when you realized that you might be able to turn this passion for nature that you've always had into something you could do as your job I used to work in the construction industry, mobile cranes, industrial uh, access, climbing. So I'd abseil into power stations, I'd work on mobile cranes, physical work, rigging, always at heights. So 2008, the credit crunch, you know, things started to grind to old. Five, six days turned to four days, four days turned to two, self-employed, worried. I used what bit of money I'd got in 2009, I came out of work, and I brought a 600 mil lens. At the time, I was newly married to Vanessa, who I knew before. She was a lovely person, very kind. She helped me more than I'll ever know. And I just brought a very expensive lens with her help, credit card, and what little bit of money I'd got. And I knew I was good with people, Ollie. 
and I knew that I knew the Peak District and local areas, the Dippers, the Water Vols, the Short-Eared Owl Sites. I'd gone to Scoma quite a bit with the Young Ornithologist Club. I'd gone to Norfolk quite a bit growing up. I knew nature. I knew that I knew how to traverse the landscape. I knew about field craft. I knew how nature for the first two hours and the last two hours of every day, if you're respectful, will let you know where they're living, will we'll let you know you know, accept you into their world. First two hours, last two hours. In the day, nature kind of goes quiet. You know, that's when the dog walkers, the humans, the bikes, the motorbikes, all that kind of stuff hits the track. And then they'll go home for tea and then nature will come out for the last couple of hours, mark their patch. Birds will sing at dawn and dusk, letting others know that that's their patch. So I knew that I knew about the basics and things. So at that time, I emailed several professional photographers, wildlife photographers that at the time I got books. Dear sir, my name's blah, 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 X-Forces, kind of blah, blah. Would you mentor me? Would you help me? So I emailed them. Um, remember, I struggled. Vanessa at the time would help me, spell check. When I put a Word document up, it was all red and green where I had to change the abbreviations and the spelling. That took another hour. Anyway, I put a nice little letter to get X-Forces. I can climb, I can camp, I can do this. I don't want any money. I'm able to drive there because Vanessa would borrow me a car. For about a month, I checked my inbox, nothing. So I went out with my camera and my newly acquired 600mm lens and I took pictures of the same subject at different settings. F4, F5, F6, F... blah, blah. These are settings on a camera. And I learned by changing the settings how the depth of field or sharpness grew. I learned how brightness changed. I also, because I'm from an artistic background, I was good at art at school. I liked the blurring of images. So I picked F22. That was a mistake, but I went that far just just out of stubbornness to learn in the theatre of wildlife. I was doing all these settings, F4, pigeon, F5, 6, pigeon, F8, pigeon. And I saw how the pigeon got blurred and sharp and blurred and sharp. And I love F22. When you press the shutter, you hear that noise. It's a blurring. So birds taking off, an animal running towards you. If you dial in F22 and a low shutter speed, you'll get something that an artist would be proud of if they created it with a brush. So you've just come back from the Falklands, actually. Yeah. Um, there's some spectacular pictures on your website, mostly penguins and stuff like that. How do you get a great photo of a penguin? Let's just start with that. You've just come back. It's fresh in your mind. What did you do? Lie down. Respect nature. Understand you're entering their theatre. Try to think and be part of what they're doing. You might think, that's madness. But stay low. No quick movements. Just watch. And if you watch, making noise coming around you. Animals that haven't been tainted by human cruelty are often very, very trusting. And the Falklands is one of those places, few places in the world, where animals, through their remoteness, are not tainted by the hand of the human cruelty. So they're very, very trusting albatrosses, penguins. They all come to you. We try to keep five, six metre distance. It's pointless. As soon as you lay down coming up to you and I told my clients who were with me and I do talks that all wildlife once was like that until the hand of cruelty the hand of man intervened and if we stop and think of that ever many that Falklands wildlife was world wildlife once it was all over that trusting but we've abused it here in the UK animals are scared of their own shadow and the Falklands they were coming to you when you say we've abused it I mean we haven't intentionally We've taken tried to abuse it. wildlife. Yeah. We've 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 built roads where there were yeah. animals. We've 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 scared animals. We've invaded their theatres. We've taken from them. There's persecution. There's poaching. There's deforestation. Even in this country, we've taken the countryside and we've turned it over to agriculture through population. I understand all that, but animals here in the UK are ultra shine. We've got few carnivores left. We've got rid of things we scared of the bears, the wolves, centuries ago. We've got foxes and badgers hanging on by a thread. One minute they're favourable, one minute they're not. Wildlife is having a difficult time. Lots of numbers are down in the UK. Peak District, red grouse, moorland shooting. We are just cleansing the countryside of its wildlife. But places like the Falklands remind you of what may be centuries ago all wildlife, and that is if you sit down, you show some respect, Animals will come to you because they're curious. I had penguins pecking at my feet. I'm saying, go away, please. Don't get too used to me smell because if you ever did that to someone that may not be as friendly, they may kick you, whatever. But And that non-interventionist style, 
is quite unusual, isn't it, for wildlife photographers these days? Very much so. I try to photograph as seen. I want the layperson on the street to look at my picture and not fall over themselves and say, wow and great. I want, them, I want that picture to resonate how it was on the ground. And if we go back to what I was saying about when I'd go, back, go, go to the country park and escape through school, foxes, badgers, camouflaging myself, understanding, getting a book from Longton Library and trying to work out how can I get close to these animals? I haven't got expensive equipment. So I learned to be part of the landscape and think part to be part of them. Fast forward to the present day, that's how I try to do now. So I try to work very ethically. What does ethically mean? With integrity, transparency, and I want people to believe that my pictures were how, how it was seen and the, uh, on the ground. And that means not moving a rock because it's going to look yeah, better on the left Yeah, try not to intervene and trying to do that dawn till dusk thing. Photography is, is very, very popular today. And it's gone to the masses where we can get entry-level digital SLRs from Curry's, which are great. They empower people. Great. Fantastic. But as soon as you point a camera into lens at something, it comes with a great responsibility. But why is it ethically problematic, really, to move the rock that's in front of the penguin to get a better view of the penguin? You can just move yourself. But what's the ethical breach? If you're moving, if you're moving stuff, it perhaps isn't as, as bad as feeding stuff and changing stuff and changing animals' behaviour. The UK, feeding stuff. Yeah, so some photographers put bait down effectively. Yeah, in, in the UK we've got live baiting with kingfishers diving into fish tanks. It's very, very fashionable. I mean, if you do social media, put in fish tank diving or fish tank. You've got a picture of a fish of a kingfisher diving in clear water with a fish. What most of the photographers don't tell you about is that they'll enter a river with waders on, they'll collect fish, they'll take them fish from the well, they'll put them in a sunken fish tank, they'll put a perch above the sunken fish tank, they'll put a hide opposite the, the perch, and a kingfisher will come, land, he will dive into the fish tank and take these fish to his nest. It's often done around the nesting periods. It cuts down on feeding. Some photographers will say, oh, we're, we're helping to save the kingfishers because we're providing food. Listen, in the evolutionary track, humans came last. That means animals can survive without human intervention. The fact that most animals are under the cosh is because of that human convention. But they're also perhaps increasing awareness so that another photographer might say, oh, well, because I took this picture of a chimp in the studio... Uh, it will go on a calendar that will be sold by London Zoo yeah, and that will spread more interest in chimpanzees so that's ultimately good for them. That's kind of a different photographer. I'm thinking if, if you're a photographer and you're out in the countryside and you're changing and cavorting with the wild version and then trying to do it for your own ends, ethics there has just gone out the window because I'm proud, Ollie, to call myself a wildlife photographer. I also do conservation, so it's a bit of a mouthful. It's wildlife and conservation. But if you were a plumber, you'd be proud that you're a plumber and you were trained and you were proficient at plumbing. You wouldn't say you can do knock that wall down as well because then you're doing it, you're bodging it. You're doing it on you're doing it for a bit of cash in hand, you're doing it for extra. But really you're a proud plumber. What's that got to do with wildlife photography? It's about integrity, it's about respecting nature, it's about understanding your subject. What about intervening though to benefit the animals you're photographing i mean the, the classic question everyone always asks wildlife photographers is what do you do when you know that the rabbit you're taking a picture of is about to get eaten by a lion or whatever so nobody in the right mind i don't, i wouldn't like to think would like to sit there and witness something being eaten but it's part of life animals kill they take the food away and and dis and, and dismember it and get on with it i've in the past, I was photographing, it's on my blog, it was a few years ago, photographing a nest of uh, pied flycatchers. Very random and then a beautiful little ancient wood in the Peak District. And after two days, I heard little scratchings on the, on, the, on the tree. A weasel had found their nest. And it was in a, uh, a box. And the pied flycatchers aren't too pop, aren't too common. They're a beautiful looking bird, black and white. The male is the female's lovely. Obviously, like the name, they catch flycatchers and damsels and not beautiful. And they nest in nest boxes. And over a period of a few hours, this weasel had tried to empty the nest. And he took a chick away. I've got the pictures. But then I was trying to shoo the weasel off. Oi, oi, oi. And I put these pictures on social media. And some people were saying, Oi, why have you intervened? And I just said, If, if you can watch animals being predated, and killed in front of you and not act. I think we're not humans. And I stayed there, you know, Ollie, till sunset. And I knew there were still chicks in there. And I thought it'd be safe. I came back the next day and they were all gone. 
I couldn't protect them. But going back to what you... say, if you're trying to be ethical and not intervene, you shouldn't have tried to. But I saw this weasel come up and go off with a, with a youngster, and the parent bird was trying to shoo him off. It was horrible to see. In danger. They were struggling. So all I was doing was, oi, oi. He just looked at me and said, do one. Who are you? <laughs> Laughing. And as your career in wildlife photography really solidified, unfortunately that had an effect on your marriage. Yeah. I was, very, I was rarely at home. Often there was one wage coming in. Vanessa would support me. I'd go off to these places. Even though I roughed it, I still needed a flight. Often I couldn't cover my costs. I was kind of unknown then, so nobody would buy my images. They asked them for nothing or nothing, so I'd give a lot away. So we grew apart. We were like brother and sister. She's a lovely person, kind, would help me. We got into debt. She tried to you know, help me a lot. So we got divorced. She made a clean break. She moved on. You know, I wish her all the best. I'll never forget her kindness. She wanted a baby by me. I brought another camera. I just carried on. And if I'm honest, looking back, I don't think I was the best husband in the in the sense that I became kind of tunneled visioned to try to get my message out there, to try to do photography ethically and to try and work the best I could. She would often say to me, why don't you do birds of prey? Why don't you do these captive stuff? Why don't you do food? Why don't you do all these setups that, you know, you don't have to search far for and you'll see them? But I said, I can't do that because... I want my pictures for people to believe that that's how it happened. If I change it, she she couldn't understand that. But looking back, very, very supportive. She went into debt to help me because you can imagine four grand lens, this, that, the, the, it's very expensive. So I've been divorced three, nearly four years. Uh, I moved out. It was very worrying at the time. And if I'm honest, it gave me a kick up the backside. I've become more, uh, I work harder. I don't give... I haven't had a holiday. I haven't paid myself anything. I make money from one-to-ones, talks and trips. I put any bit of spare money I've got back into my business. I fund my own conservation stuff because I don't, like I've said, I don't want to take just nice pictures. I want to take pictures of things that aren't too great, like the orangutans, the cruelty, the circuses, the, the, the here in the UK, the raptor persecution, the fox killing. It's kind of sad because we've got some beautiful wildlife in the UK, which, you know, hopefully I represent on my website. But I think, you know, we should carry as much, give as much gravitas to saving the rhino and the elephants to the UK wildlife. I really do. And then, you know, all the youngsters like me as a kid going off onto these little adventures, drawing the cold toast, the, the art deck of flasks, the rucksack, the wellies. And I think I grew up and amongst all that violence and all that distastefulness, I grew up knowing about the circle of life, love, empathy, respect. And I think if children in the future only didn't have that because wildlife was missing, I think that would be very sad. My mum was one of the best naturalists. What was she doing introducing me to nature? I asked myself, what was she doing taking me to Safari Lake and Park Hall and Bluebell Wood, which is still there? What was she doing allowing me to press uh, bluebells and bring owl pellets back and let me dissect them on the table with hot water? And that's why I talk about what I do with wildlife. That's why it means something to me. And every picture I take is, it's a spark in my heart and it's projected through my eye. When I stop and look at that picture, behind it, if I was really scrutinising, my mum's behind that. Craig Jones. And you can see loads of Craig's stunning photos and also sign up for one of his photography workshop tours on his website, craigjoneswildlifephotography.co.uk. UK. And by the way, I've also uploaded Craig's image of that weasel eating the pied flycatcher chick onto our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, still to come, our record of the week. And Alex Fox is up next after this. Time for some arousing conversation now with Alex Fox. It's the Fox Hell. How are you doing, Alex? Hey there, Ollie. I am grippingly, drippingly moist and ready to foist some useful sexual facts upon thee. 
Christ. Uh, <laughs> what have you been up to this week? I hope you have the Ferrero Rocher at the ready, Ollie. Because Always. I have been spending time with the ambassador of Norway at one of the ambassador's parties. How did that happen? Well, there are two exceptional doctors and authors called Ellen Struckendahl and Nina Brockman who have recently published a brilliant book called The Wonder Down Under, A User's Guide to the Vagina. And it has got so many interesting things in there. For a start, have you heard of the word disco moose? No. Is that even one word? Surely it's two. Is it hyphenated? It's Norwegian. It translates as disco mouse. And it is the distinct, sometimes quite pungent odour emitted from a lady's uh, mouse (laughs) when she's been to the disco. So basically that is the Norwegian word for a sweaty flange. Right. Uh, I also learnt that if you do a headstand, for example, in a yoga class, uh, whilst you are menstruating, it is possible for some blood to run down through your fallopian tubes and collect inside your body. This is supposed to be the sexy bit, Alex. So far you've talked about sweaty flanges and um, periods. Would you like to know that a French prince Uh, who was born in 1886 tried to surgically move her clitoris closer to her vaginal opening in order to uh, achieve orgasm during penetrative sex i would like to know that yep it didn't work um it's time for our listener question sponsored as ever by our friends at mycondom.com ollie do you remember that song that goes damn i wish i was your lover Mm. Well, sometimes if you are someone's lover, you might need a dam, with a dental dam, which is a small square of latex. You pop over uh, a lady's parts and you can lick and feel through it and it reduces the chance of STI transmission. And mycondom.com stocked loads of those, including vegan variants, uh, which might be particularly useful for women who sleep with women. And it's actually National Lesbian, Bisexual and Trans Women's Health Week this week from the 12th to the 17th of March. Is there a party for that at an embassy anywhere? <laughs> I hope so. Um, The point is really that women who sleep with women often are underrepresented in terms of their healthcare needs. uh, And this week is trying to raise awareness of that and uh, deliver better healthcare provisions for them. And our question of the week comes from an anonymous man who says, I'm 25, but when I first had sex at the age of 16, the condom split after some over-enthusiastic but well-meaning technique. Luckily, my partner didn't get pregnant, but it started a spiral of paranoia, after which I didn't have sex again for two years. And more importantly, I've never been able to trust condoms again. I've recently come out of a long-term relationship where condoms weren't necessary, but I want to start playing the field now and having sex with ladies with whom I don't know their entire sexual history. I've been pretty successful on dates, but frankly, I'm scared of the possibility of impregnating someone and all the life-changing consequences that that entails. So I'm turning down sex. I feel I am missing out when I should be at the peak of my sexing career. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's no indication that he's using that word ironically, but thank you for using it. Uh, so he says, uh, Alex, what should I do? How, how do I ever trust condoms again? Uh, it's actually very unusual for condoms to break or split. If they're used correctly, they have a 98% effectiveness at preventing pregnancy. And those odds get a lot worse if you're not using them perfectly. So there are, uh, there are quite a few reasons why problems can occur. First one, people use the wrong size. If you pop something on that's too small then it's more likely to split Uh, secondly you've got to be really careful opening the packet if you use your teeth or your fingernails or you're just a bit too um enthusiastic in your ripping then you can end up slipping (laughs) into a pit of terrible rhymes (laughs) that may damage the condom um another reason that they they can fail is uh you need to squeeze the air out of the teat the the little pocket at the end of a condom that's there to collect the sperm when it's ejaculated Mm. if his partner wasn't very sexually experienced either Mm. and was nervous it's likely that she didn't produce a lot of natural lubricant and unlubricated latex there's friction there that can that can increase the chances of breakage so adding lube both to the outside and sometimes a tiny little drop to the inside too can increase comfort but also decrease the risk of an issue if the condom was out of date 
then the latex or the material it was made from may have degraded. If you're sitting on it and creasing the package a lot, yeah. it's never good to crease your package, Holly. Painful. Uh, then what's inside the packet can get damaged. Um, people often as well keep condoms in glove compartments in cars. So you're not supposed to do that because? Because they can get very cold if the car's in ice overnight or yeah. very, very hot. Um, a lot of people as well keep them in bathrooms and if they're in a cabinet next to a hot water pipe, again, they can overheat and that can degrade the latex. Wow, that's good. I did not know that. I mean, it's ah. obvious when you say... But it's a bit like, I didn't realise, I found out recently, you are not supposed to have underfloor heating in a kitchen next to a wine cooler. Good fact. That is the most John Lewis-style, Ollie Man-infused fact ever. Okay, so, uh, I mean, it's a bedside cabinet drawer, right? That's okay. That's the right place. You just need to make sure they're in date and that basically you see what you're doing when you open the packet yeah. and, and you put it on your cock properly. Final point as well, make sure you've not got anything oily on your hands. Again, younger people often find it more difficult to get their mitts on proper water-based or silicone-based lubricants. Mm. They instead use things like baby oil or massage oil, trying their best to create a sexy atmosphere. Unfortunately, certain oils, when you apply them to latex, degrade it really fast. If you go on Google, you can actually see this in action in some videos. People have blown up condoms, they've uh, applied a a thin layer of oil to them they burst almost immediately it's a really really big impact that certain oils can have that's interesting because i I wondered why companies like ann summers make massage oil don't they and i wondered why it was that you'd go to a company you associate with a bedroom to get a product that you know can be a, a sex product but can just be a massage product but i wonder if that's the distinction that it doesn't disintegrate latex some of them that are um water-based or non-oil based yeah absolutely totally compatible i know durex make um i think it's called massage and play two in one that's totally a-okay to use with, I, i'm laughing because if i went to a posh spa and they were using durex massage oil i would be <laughs> Suspicious of what was about to happen. I don't think you're going to use that down at Champneys. No, you're all right. It's not a brand you associate with wellness. My point is, anyway, condoms, brilliant. List of things that can make them less brilliant, quite extensive. All of those things, or any of those things, could have had an impact upon this person's experience when they were younger. Yes. Getting savvy about that, learning about it as an adult, should help to reassure him that he now can use condoms properly. Um, I have a phrase, I like to say that people should become condominant, which means they're in charge of carrying and using condoms and feeling confident about what they're doing. Mm. Um, In fact, I'd really recommend that this writer buys a variety of different condoms so that he can use these in private when he's masturbating, find one that fits him nicely, build up his skill set so he feels fine that his technique is bang on and he's not going to perhaps make mistakes that he may may have done as an over-enthusiastic, less knowledgeable young person. And the other thing I think he really needs to reassure himself about are the facts about the chances of pregnancy. For a start, if he ha- if his new partner, if he chooses to have penetrative sex with a new girl and she is on an additional form of hormonal or non-hormonal contraception, then the chances of a pregnancy occurring are extremely low. Uh, there are lots of emergency options now, more so than ever before. Uh, you've got what is mistakenly called the morning after pill. You can actually take that up to five mornings after. There's two main types. One's can called- you? Because we, we had that issue once and it was because of the name, I guess. An emergency well, dash down to the chemist the next morning thinking you had to do it as soon as possible. Sooner is better. With all forms of pill, emergency contraceptive pill, the, the faster you take them, the better. Um, there's one called Levenel that you have to take within 72 hours. So three days of unprotected sex. But the reason why medics say hours is because uh, you may have had sex uh, late at night and that will be different to if you've had unprotected sex or a condom fell first thing in the morning you it's it's the hours that you really need to measure rather than the days Uh, and then there's another form of um, pill called ella one that gives you up to 120 hours now the issue here is that both of those pills work by either preventing or delaying ovulation 
if a woman has already ovulated, then those pills are far less likely to work. But you still got to back up. You can have an intrauterine device or an intrauterine system, commonly known as the coil fitted, uh, and that can work up to five days after you are due to ovulate. Yeah, but are you realistically the morning after going to say, all right, let's go and get a coil fitted? I mean, that's not his job, is it? No, it would be the woman's decision to do what was right for her body. But the point of me telling everybody this, not least because I think it's useful information for everyone to have, is that in my experience, if someone is worried about something, the more they know that will reassure them, the calmer they are. I'm giving this information in order to let our writer know that if his worst fear should happen to be realised, there are multiple options out there. So he needs to worry less about that fear in the first place. A final note before I close the lid on this week's foxhole. Um, Our writer does say that he's afraid of the potential life-changing consequences that uh, an unplanned pregnancy would entail. Just going to remind you, my love, probably whatever woman you're with would also be worried yeah. about those. She's going to have to carry that thing for nine months. I think, and yeah. then the next 70 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the likelihood is that uh, any partner that you hook up with is not going to want to entrap you with an unplanned pregnancy. She will want to take care of herself and any situation that will arise as well. So you're both on the mm. same team. Particularly if you start by explaining, look, I want to play the field, love. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit nervous about using condoms in case they break with you. Just Tell her about your sexing career. And remember, if you have a question for Alex Fox to answer on next week's show, then all you need to do is send it in to us. Scuttle on over to our website, which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback. And if you want to enhance your sexing career, then what's the website you need to go to, Alex? For all of your training needs, head over to mycondom.com and use the code FOXHOLE to get 15% off everything. Well, that is almost it for this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador. It's Dominic in the Bahamas, who's given us the following five-star review. The Modern Man is easy listening, but never boring. I found the show through Answer Me This, and I'm now binging through the seasons. The production's first class, the topics are in-depth, and I'm writing this so that I can be man ambassador for the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. Uh, Dominic, it's worked. I'm proud to pronounce you man ambassador for the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. If you would like to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, please do. It really helps others discover the show. All links are at modernman.co.uk slash subscribe. Uh, Music now, and thanks to Django Django, our theme tune comes from them, and here's our record of the week. It's from folk duo Madison Ward and the Mama Bear. It's called Childhood Goodbye, and it's out now on Glass Note Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Walk this earth till this curse won't come back again. Be my road, be my home, my bad weather friend. Walk this earth till this curse won't come back again. Oh, how good. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.